This is episode 28 with the incredible and inspirational Brett Gibbons. G'day everyone and welcome to The Blogcast. I'm your host, Brendan Hardman, and each week we bring you an inspirational guest or message to help you blokes out there live a holistically healthy lifestyle. Thank you for tuning in wherever you are around the world and let's get stuck in. Face adversity head on in your training and you will conquer it smoothly in your fight. That quote's by the champ champ Conor McGregor, and who's a UFC fighter, if anyone doesn't know, and champ champ because he's won a, a belt in two, across two different uh, weight divisions. Anyway, that doesn't really matter. But today's guest is the incredible Senior Constable Brett Gibbons. So people in South Australia may be aware of who Brett is. People outside of South Australia may not be. Brett is a current serving police officer of the South Australian Police Force and was involved in an incident. And we're going to get stuck into this incident today and we're going to tell you everything about this incident to the point where Brett actually walks us through what happened to him step by step, the processes he took and how the training he received as a police officer really saved his life. Now, I will warn you, this isn't for the faint-hearted, this episode. It is a graphic episode. Um, as I said before, Brett walks us through moment by moment what happened to him and, and there were many, many points where I sat there both in awe, in amazement and in, in quite frankly in shock of, of what he was telling me and what he was going through. And it is just an incredible story though. From a man who's gone from being in induced coma to then being back on track and getting back to the point where he can serve again as a serving police officer, where he still currently does right now, the journey that he's been on is is truly, truly incredible. And I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did recording it because he's a legend, he's an inspiration, and he's an incredible bloke. Okay, so before we get stuck in today's episode, we're going to go through Legend of the Week. And as I said on last week's episode, we're going to jump to Facebook today. If you want to be Legend of the Week, all you need to do is leave us a comment, a review, or a rating on either Facebook or iTunes. Preferably iTunes, if you've got iTunes. Uh, however, if you don't have iTunes and you use Android or something along those lines, jump over to Facebook and give us a review over there, just as handy. But iTunes, leave me us a rating and leave me us a review on iTunes, especially review, helps us grow and helps us, I guess, uh, go higher in the rankings, climb the rankings. And we're doing quite well at the moment. However, we want to do better. We want to get out there. We want to spread this message to as many people as you can. So if you can get as many reviews on iTunes as you possibly can, then it, it kind of beats the algorithm and of iTunes and helps you grow uh, a lot quicker. So we had a couple of Legends of the Week today, two taken from our Facebook page. First is Zach Lockhart. All I can really say is what you're doing is incredible, mate. Get amongst it, blokes. Legend. Full stop. Zach, you're a legend, mate. And uh, since Zach has been supporting this podcast, he has been um, 
an incredible sport to us in the past month or so. He's shared a lot of our pages. He's uh, he's liked and commented on a lot of things. He's engaged, and uh, I love the fact that he is enjoying this this podcast and he's loving what we're doing so far. Our second review comes from a uh, a legend of a bloke and a mate of mine, Chris Pittman. And so he's left us a, uh, a review on iTunes, a great podcast for blokes and anyone, to be honest. If you suffer with or support someone living with mental health, then please subscribe to the Blokecast. Some really great insight and tools to assist you in your journey. And that's what I really love about that review is that this podcast is all about obviously normalizing and breaking down those conversations that uh, surround mental, mental health, especially with men uh, being the Blokecast. We're all aimed at, at at breaking down those barriers that surround men's mental health. However, what we want to do is give you the tools so that you can help yourself and get yourself to a position where you're happy and comfortable in your life again. And that's what we really, really aim to do. And so to hear this from Chris, that he is taking away some some of the tools that we've been going through in each of our episodes, especially the solo episodes that I go through, it's, um, it's, yeah, it's really great to actually hear that from someone, even if you do know them. But it's fantastic. And thank you to both Chris and Zach for leaving a review on Facebook. You are both legends of the week this week. As I said, if you want to be a legend of the week, all you need to do is leave a rating or a review on iTunes or Facebook. Okay, we're going to get stuck into this episode now. So sit back, relax, grab a beverage of your choice, and let's get stuck in. All right, g'day legends. Welcome to episode 27 of the Blowcast. We are here today with Senior Constable Brett Gibbons. Uh, he is a police officer in South Australia. And thank you, mate, for taking the time. Uh, we're actually sitting in the in the police headquarters in South Australia, which is really cool. So we've got a nice little nice little scenery change here from uh, from the old uh, in the in the back room of my house kind of style. So thanks, mate, for taking the time today. And I, I really appreciate you sitting down with this, mate. No worries at all. Thanks for having me. Uh, always happy for a chat. That's good, mate. That's good because we're in for a good one today. So <laughs> how's everything been going on lately? You been going well? Been going well. Been going well. Yeah, keeping busy, but uh, you know. Just trying to avoid the cold like everyone else, I guess. Yeah, it's bloody fucking freezing here at the moment. So <laughs> I just came back from overseas, actually. Just um, like I was overseas in Florida for uh, about, I don't know, nearly a month. And um, the weather over there is is essentially similar to Darwin and, and oh, Cairns. Nice. And so, so it's good in some lengths, but I hate humidity at the same time. Oh, so yeah. Kind of uh, yeah. You either love it or you hate it. Exactly, yep. yeah. So so I tried, tried my whole military career to avoid humid humidity <laughs> in the humid locations. Uh, and now you do it voluntarily. Yeah, yeah that's it. Now you do it voluntarily. Exactly. So, um, mate, you're a, for the listeners here, like I said, you're a, um, you're a police officer here in, in Adelaide and, and you're, I guess, a passionate advocate as well for, for police wellbeing and, and, and overall, both mental and physical. So, um, and I'm actually really excited today because you have such an incredible story. Like it's not just um, – listeners will find out what we're going to guess what we're going to go into what we're going to talk about but it's not just the incident that is the story it's it's what followed that and then and then when what it's led to now is mm. is just it's just an incredible uh incredible story so um as we said before 
uh, I want to cover a few things today in particular, which is talk about you first, then we're going to talk about um, the incident itself in 2011, then we're going to talk about post that sure. and what it's kind of led to now. But before we kind of get kicked in that, can you give us, or oh, our listeners, a little bit of a little bit of a spiel about you and about yourself and um, and who you are and because people might not have heard of you and, uh, and so, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I joined the police in 2007 after being in hospitality for most of my life up to that point. So yeah, right. um, I joined because I'd spent some time in London and uh, I worked opposite the Holborn police station up there and uh, it was the local watering hole for the cops when they finished their shift and hearing their stories, hearing them talk, hear about the things that they'd get up to and, uh, you know, I just came to really admire that passion that they all had for it. Um, and that was something that I wanted for myself, you know, sort of, ignite that passion for your the people around you and uh, and get in there and help the community and help out uh well help the helpers i guess yeah and what year was that when when was that uh 2007's when i joined 2007, but yeah. uh i came back from england in 2002 yeah so a bit of a delay there while i sort of did a little bit more travel and you know i wanted to just sort of get a few life experiences under the belt i guess before yeah, i definitely. settled down to the career yeah and did you before you went over to europe did you have an, a mindset like did you was it already set in place that you kind of cops was something you were looking at or was, was not it, even on the radar wasn't even on the radar yeah. i think uh when my friends found out that i'd put my application in most of them didn't believe me because <laughs> it's just something that i'd never mentioned to them before but it yeah, was right. always sort of simmering in the back there since that trip away that uh, that that was what i was going to ultimately do and what i was going to work towards and you know, I wanted to build up my uh, build up my fitness, build up my life experience a little bit before I had my go at it, and yep. I got that go in two thousand seven. I was lucky enough to get in first try. Yeah, yeah. And so that is was the school the same as it is now? Like they've got the school down is at Port Adelaide, I think they do the academy down there now. Is uh, Fort Largs. Fort Largs, yeah, that's it. So I went through in the old academy, which was actual Fort Largs. Yep. And now it's oh, uh, wow. the new academy. Yeah, which yeah is, the new uh, one. It's pretty fancy. The nice one. schmick built yeah. up. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I went down there because a mutual friend of ours is in the in the cops. I went down there watch his march out, and then oh, he, yeah. he gave yeah. us a, he gave us a tour of the facilities there and showed us everything. I was like, oh, this is bloody crazy! It's it's like a U.S. university, like a U.S. Yeah. college. Like yeah, it's, it's huge. Got its own little shopping town in it, and yeah. all the rest of it. So yeah, they've they've done a good job building that up. Yeah, no, nah, it is good. And your career since then. So, um, what uh, can you tell us a bit about your career within the within the police? Yeah, most of my career has been spent on the road, actually. It's uh, it's only recently that I've come off of that. So um, did my first stint out in the eastern suburbs and then I went out uh, country for a while. I went to Seduna for a couple of years. That would have been interesting. Yeah, you definitely you see a different side of policing, but it, it's a different part of the world. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you go out there and it's not, the typical policing environment you don't have backup you don't have specialist teams arriving to help you with managing scenes or anything like that you do it all yourself so uh that was a, a very sharp learning curve for a young probationer yeah yeah and you, i guess you the local cops so everyone knows where you live and everyone knows oh uh, yeah <laughs> yep, <laughs> can come was, and uh, knock around your door at any time occasionally <laughs> an issue yeah yeah definitely <laughs> right. uh yeah i did a couple of years out there before i moved back to adelaide um then uh I've stayed predominantly on the road. Um, after the shooting, I did a little stint teaching down at the academy while I physically recovered and yep. got back to a point where I could actually get back out on the road. But uh, that right from the get-go it was my plan to get back onto the road after the injuries. So the minute that I got the opportunity, I went straight back out. Yeah. 
and uh, it's only a couple of years ago that I've moved into the victim contact role, so just assisting victims of crime with navigating their way through a fairly difficult process, difficult process, and a, and a hard time of their lives. Yeah, definitely. It's a, it's an interesting thing when when you so when you actually after well, and we'll talk about the shooting in, in a minute, but after shooting when you went into teaching, did you find that as a natural draw? Like, did you enjoy that, or did you? Was it was it kind of marking time until you could? Were you solely focused on getting back on the road again? I was always focused on getting back on the road, but I knew that one day uh, I'd like to have my time teaching down at the academy. And so when they said to me, "Well, what would you like to do while you're physically recovering from your injuries?" and um, you know that was the first thing that came to mind. And uh, yeah, it was no question. They they said no problems. We'll make that happen. And. I spent, uh, I think, nine months down there teaching a course and teaching community constables. Yeah. So, yeah. And so nine nine months. Yep. And then you're back on the road after nine months. Well, that was nine months at the academy. And there yeah. was probably about six or seven months before okay. that. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Well, I was, uh, was <laughs> locked oh, in the house sort of thing. I was like, fuck, are you telling me that nine months after after what we're going to go through, like you managed to get back on the road? That is unbelievable. No, no, but like, God. But still, 18 months. Like, you know, that's that works out, well, 15, 14 months, you know, kind of length. That's that's an incredible Yeah, about, about a year and a half. They yeah. put me in the station for a little while, just eased me into it. Yeah, so yeah. About, yeah, about a year and a half from uh, being taken offline to being fully back online. Yeah. So you've got to have that crawl before you walk and run phase and then and get uh, yourself back Yeah, it's frustrating it. As, yeah, as it is. It uh, is yeah. I am glad that they made me crawl for a little while. Yeah, definitely. And so let's let's talk about 2011 then and that, sure. that incident. So tell us, um, you were called out to a domestic disturbance and uh, at, a, at a property. Um, was it was it a regular call or did you did you know what you were going to expect there or was it just a regular, hey, there's a domestic disturbance, can you guys go and check this out? I remember the job pretty well actually and when it came over there was nothing about it that rang any alarm bells. Uh, it was coded as a 104, so potential violence, but it was only called that because um, I think the, the job of, the text of the job read something along the lines of the neighbours come around and said he's going to kill us. Yeah, right, yeah, yeah. But there was no mention of guns or anything like that. Um, so we just made our way as normal, did our checks as normal. Um, we got the call. Uh, we'd just been pulling in. We were actually just about to cook the team barbecue at the station. Yeah, right. Um, so we'd, you know, we'd loaded up with the bread and the sausages and all that sort of stuff. Uh, got the call just as we were driving through the station car park. Came out the other side and um, it was a, about a 90-second ride straight up the road to oh, that uh, Hectorville. That close. Uh, well, it wasn't that close, but... Yeah. Uh, oh, yes. you know, sirens and stuff. Yeah, yeah, we, uh, we... I mean, because it was potentially violent, we did make sure we got there as quick as possible. Yeah, and so when you arrived, um, tell us a little bit about that. So uh, we got there, the, um, the house was in darkness, but we could see that the front door was open, and um, as we started to approach it, I remember my partner... Uh, on the night, Travis, um, he sort of gave me a nudge and he said, oh, I think I can see someone in there. Um, but we uh, we approached the door and we could see straight away that uh, this was not going to be your normal scene. So um, as we approached, we could see through the open doorway the a little entrance, like, you know, there's little small square entrance spaces and then it's got maybe sort of four corridors or doorways or different things leading off of it. Yep. Um, and 
right from the get-go, we could see that uh, there was blood everywhere. So uh, yeah. on the floors, up the walls, and it was very obvious to us that um, whatever had caused this, it had to be a weapon, so yeah. it, a knife or a gun, nothing else was going to cause that yeah. sort of spread over spread that kind of area. Yeah. And so you entered the building, um, I assume, hesitantly and uh, pistols out that stage or – how do, we, how do we normally – I don't know I don't know the normal procedure. I can think of it from a military point of view, but sure, we're a little yeah. bit more extreme. Yeah, before we do. But uh, no, once once we'd made the determination that there had to be a weapon involved, then, yeah, the firearms came out yeah. and uh, we proceeded to clear the entrance room, um, just scanning it and securing what – uh, what we could of the side rooms from where we could see, but that was quite difficult because it was in darkness. We only had our uh, the old mag light torches to yeah, work right. with. So. Yeah. And what did you find when you when you went into the building? The first room that we went into, uh, it turns out, was the master bedroom. Yep. And as we entered, we could see two bodies on the floor. Uh, one of them was very clearly dead. Uh, his injuries were catastrophic. I, I don't think there's another way to describe them. Mm. And I remember uh, once we'd cleared the bedroom, which we did as quickly as possible, uh, we went to check on the two on the floor. And I remember just not bothering to check the older of the two for signs of life because it was no need, yeah. really clear that, that that was not yeah. on the cards. Uh it's really weird. I, before I checked the young boy, I remember checking the rest of the room and you get this almost primal urge. Um, I remember it was just so horrific and there was um, so much blood, you know, it was like something out of a movie. And I remember actually checking under the bed to make sure there were no monsters and I really genuinely expected for there to be a muzzle po- poking out at me yeah, when, I, uh, when I got down to look. Uh, turns out that wasn't the case and... Um, my partner and I, uh, we'd been working together for quite some time, so he took up a position standing over me while I checked yeah. the younger of the two um, on the floor for signs of life. And um, I didn't find any. Uh, the uh, The young boy, he, I later found out he was about 13 or 14, I think, at the time. Um, he was missing a large chunk of his neck. Yeah. And so, again, I wasn't really expecting to find that he was alive. Yeah. Uh, I couldn't check for a pulse on his neck, so I checked his arms, uh, checked for breathing, and there was nothing. Um, we'd actually... Be a lot of loss of blood from that. In top yeah. Injury, yeah. Yeah, and uh, he was completely unresponsive at that time. I couldn't feel a heartbeat, couldn't feel any breathing or anything like that, no rise or fall of the chest. So um, we determined that, you know, we needed to keep moving through the building because... We didn't know, A, where the shooter was and, B, uh, we didn't know if there were any other victims or anybody else alive left in the house. Yeah, and so you move out of the master bedroom back into the main corridor. Well, that was the plan, but just as we did that, there was this um, almighty, I guess you'd call it a retching noise. and Like uh, someone vomiting kind of, like that type of style? Yeah, uh, thankfully without the vomit. Uh, But the young boy, it turned out, was still alive. Oh, shit. um, Missing... You know, a huge piece of his uh, of his neck, and you know, so sort of up through the jaw down, and and I think from memory, it's sort of come along the side of his jugular, so very close to just being outright yeah. fatal. 
Mm. Uh, but somehow, miraculously, even though it had been a couple of minutes at least since the shooting, he was still breathing. And it's it's almost like the the not the luck, but the that scenario of you just happened to be in the spot mm. at that time when he came back to. Yeah, if like, it wasn't for him doing that, we would have left to look for other survivors yeah, at that point. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Uh, but the minute that we realised he was alive, our objectives changed yeah. very quickly from, uh, you know, we had to make a very quick decision. Do we take a gamble that there are other survivors and go looking for them or do we try and get the one person that we know is alive out? Mm. And yep. uh, on the balance of it, without knowing where the shooter was, we decided that the best course was to... Um, have patrols who were already coming to us yep. surround the place while we tried to get the one that we knew was alive out yep. the door. Yeah, definitely. Treat the the one most closest to you and then and then kind of move on from there. Yeah, well, uh, at that point the plan was to come back in in force mm, with definitely. a few backup patrols and clear the house in one go yep. uh, rather than the two of us try to do it and then have a crew come in after us to try yeah. and get the boy. Trying to clear a house with... Um, I mean, I can only speak about from the training that we kind of do. I've never done it in my like as in a, in a live. I have done it in a live scenario, but not like a not not in a live like action. I guess within yeah. within combat scenario. But I know a lot of friends that have, and and trying to do it from with only two men would be really really tough. Like people don't, the people kind of think like you just kind of go through different rooms, but you've got to. You know, you've got to be clearing rooms. You've got to be looking in every every crevice. You've got to then be watching your back, and to be, right, to only yeah. have that with two people would have been would have been extremely hard to, to clear yeah. a whole house with two people. Two people can clear a house, but I don't think they can really secure a house. Exactly. Yeah, so yeah, yeah, exactly. you know, we could have gone through it room by room, but the reality was, it, all it would have taken was for us to miss one thing, or to, for someone to come in through another door while we were searching a room, yeah. and our backs would have been completely exposed. Definitely. Um, yeah, there was just really no no reasonable way to, to do it with that smaller number. So, yeah, the, the objective really quickly became get the boy out, yep. the ambulance, and then come back with reinforcements. So you're working on uh, saving the lad at this at this stage and, and I assume yep. just applying first aid and, and then what happens next? Uh, so there was not a lot of first aid we could do at the scene. I mean, we tried to press some, um, some old clothing into the wound to yep. staunch the bleeding a little bit, but... Uh, we came up with a, a really quick plan, which was that um, Travis being the bigger of the two of us, he was going to pick up and carry the boy mm-hmm. and I was going to cover their exit. Yep. Um, unfortunately, uh, that was not to be the way it panned out, I guess. Yeah. So take us through that next stage then. So you've obviously prepared to to remove the, the boy from the room and then and then what took place next? So Travis was getting ready to um, move the young boy, Marcel his name is, and uh, as he was doing this, as he was getting ready, I moved back out into the entrance room and quickly covered off, you know, picked the best place that I could to provide the cover, but uh, there were two entrances that I couldn't see into very clearly and I didn't want Travis coming out carrying the boy mm. and for me not to have cleared those two entrances because he would have been very vulnerable at that point and not Definitely. able to defend himself. So um, as I stepped up to check those two, one of them was the doorway into I think like a kitchen lounge room mm-hmm. sort of area and the other one was a corridor. And uh, down the corridor there was immediately to my right 
there were doors. And as I stepped up to that corridor, a figure stepped out of the corridor towards me. Um, huge, huge figure. Uh, and um, I, I had less than a second, I guess, before the uh, shotgun that he was holding was swung up and uh, point-blank range about between one and two inches, the surgeons reckon, from my right jaw. Um, he's let go with the first barrel. So it's a double barrel then, obviously. Double barrel, 12-gauge shotgun, yep. Yeah, fucking hell. And I know I've, I've, I was saying before we kind of came on that I've listened to a lot of uh, and watched a lot of content of yours over the – actually over, over a number of years now because Nick um, – uh, was actually planning not to say his name on because he's still he's still a cop, but <laughs> <laughs> I won't say his last name. But Nick put me onto you a while ago, and um, you and hear that Nick, we're onto you. Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, and we know where you live too. <laughs> um, but but yeah, so so I've been actually following you for a number of years, and and when I started doing this, um, he got back in touch with me again, and he said, "Mate, you just got to get Brett back on, and you got to get him on." And 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 I was, and then obviously we we made contact months ago. We just haven't had the time since then to be able to, to to catch up but so i've i've consumed a lot of your content in the past so i know the um the extent of the the injuries that that shot caused mm. um and um but if it's okay with you would you mind describing i guess what uh what that what that was like what actually happened to your face when that gun went off uh so do you mean physically yeah yeah the, yeah so um uh well i mean it opened up pretty much everything from just below the uh, the cheekbone, as you saw from those, uh, those yeah, photos earlier. We, did, we actually just looked at the photos a minute ago. So uh, so I opened up from yeah, just below the right cheekbone to about halfway down there, well, not quite halfway down the right side of my neck. Mm. Um, uh, the surgeons would later argue a lot about um, they didn't actually believe it was a shotgun wound uh, and – the reason was what they figured out had happened is because he was so close when he discharged it, it actually superheated the jaw. Yeah, right. And so when the pellets, uh, or sorry, when the shot entered, uh, instead of spreading like a shotgun normally would, it didn't have enough distance yeah, to spread. Yeah, so close, yeah. And so it hit as a solid rather than... A solid mass rather than, yeah. A group of, you know, yeah. a cluster. Yeah. Uh, because the jaw was superheated by the muzzle flash then uh the the jaw actually broke really cleanly as opposed to shattering so that was the reason they didn't really believe they were pulling out bits of shotgun yeah and it wasn't actually until they had a, a specialist who um uh he was a military doctor from south africa and it wasn't until he came along and started pulling bits out that he went no these are shotgun pellets yeah not not bullets so did you remain conscious at that time or um I think I know the answer to that question. I think you did remain conscious, didn't you, at that at that time? Uh, I blacked out for a couple of seconds. Yeah. Uh, when I came to, I was crouching on the floor, so I never passed out in the sense that I was laying on the ground or anything like that. But um, I guess I, you know, when you stand up too quickly, um, maybe like a concussion or something like that. Like it's yeah, yeah, yeah just this throbbing in the head and and that you know, a couple of seconds of blank space, I guess you'd call it. Yep. Um, so I, I was fortunate that I, I managed to remain mostly conscious um, because, you know, I uh, loss of blood was yeah, the, the first thing that yep. 
was coming to mind and yeah, definitely. very obvious, you know, I could I could physically see it. So yeah. And um the shooter at this stage, did he withdraw back down the corridor or did he remain over the top of you or he um he engaged in a brief firefight with Travis. Yep. So shot, he shot the other one obviously, the other barrel. Uh, well, he tried to, um, but uh, he miscalculated a little bit. He was so close to me when he fired it that uh, bits of my blood and my flesh clogged up the other barrel. Yeah. So when he went to fire it, um, I don't know, it, I guess the it was too wet yeah. or something like that yeah. from the actual blood soaking into it and so it never actually caught. So yeah. um, Travis returned fire and managed to drive him off. Um, uh, they had a brief sort of exchange there and then he fled uh, out the back door, I think, back to his house, which was the next door neighbours. Oh, okay, yeah. Shit, I didn't even – I thought this was – so this was actually a neighbour. This is his neighbour. Oh, no, shit. Actually, okay, I thought – I thought, yeah, right, yeah. I thought it was the neighbour – originally I thought it was the neighbour who called – Obviously, it was the neighbor who called, but I thought they were saying the next door neighbor is threatening to like kill someone in his house. No, he's actually coming to their house. He's come to their house and threatened them. Yep. No. Okay. Now I'm on board. Now I'm on board. Okay. So he's fled out of the the building, but now you obviously still need to you need to get yourself out, and you still need to get the young fella out as well. So what what takes place next? So when I started to come to and. Um, I felt myself starting to respond automatically, so I went from that crouching position to standing. And the first thing I remember doing was um, I could—I knew exactly what had happened, so I tried to call out to see if I could get a response from Travis or from anybody. And I couldn't hear my own voice over the ringing in my ears yeah. uh, because it was so close. Um, the tinnitus was just, you know, that, that incessant buzz. And it's... Funny now, looking back, you know, you see all those old wartime movies and uh, when the shell goes off next to them. Like shell shock and stuff. Yeah, and, and, you know, the shaky camera. It's um, Honestly, I think that's probably as close as you can get to actually representing it for someone that hasn't experienced it. So that's just one of those odd things that you sort of look back on and think, wow, that that actually is how it works. Yeah, it actually works. So I stood up um, and I I wasn't 100% sure that my voice was even working. As I said, I couldn't hear it and um, I put my hand up to feel my face to check what the damage was. I didn't feel anything, uh, just a bit of wet. And when I pulled my hand away, it was covered in blood. Yeah. So um, obviously the nerves in your face were shot. Uh, no pun intended there, but like <laughs> yeah, they were they were stuffed. Like so you couldn't actually feel yourself touching your face. Like it could have been shock, could have been a lot of things. I guess. Uh, so. No, it's, um, it's because there was nothing there to feel. Oh, okay, it's yes. mostly ripped straight away, and then it, it tore itself in either direction. Oh, okay, yep, yep. So, uh, so after realizing the extent of of what had happened, I tried to get on the radio, but uh, there was too much traffic on the police band. So I flipped the emergency switch, and that overrides all the local traffic. And I've called out the uh, the code that no officer ever wants to use, and no officer ever wants to hear uh, eight hundred one officer down or officer in danger. Um, and I said to them, well, I think I said something like, uh, one officer shot, unable to locate others. Um, I can't find my partner, more to follow. Um, I'm not convinced that I ever got to the more to follow part because immediate survival kind of took precedence there. But um, from there, I, I got the um, 
radio hoster and, and sort of moved it across to the other side because they started responding to me. So I could tell I, I was obviously speaking or they yeah. could hear me. So that was that was problem number one. Um, from there it's really – I think it's like a computer program goes off in your head and you go back to your training um, because when you've got that shock settling in, uh, you go back to what you were taught to do. Mm. And thankfully I had a lot of really good instructors because um, – the training sort of kicked in and it became like a, a bit of a program in my head. All right, first I checked myself, all right, I'm okay. I, I can't find my partner. That's step two. Um, step three, okay, who else needs to be evacuated from this situation? And the answer was, well, I don't know what's happened to the boy yet. And so I started moving towards the door and I was calling out to the boy, um, to Marcel, saying, look, I, I don't know where you are. I don't know if you can hear me. I can't help you right now. You have to follow me. Um, I, I can't carry you. I can't um, pick you up because I could already feel myself getting weaker from the yeah. blood loss. And it was um, – but by the minute you could actually feel consciousness sort of slipping a little bit. Yeah, uh, definitely. So from there I went over to the front door and I tried to open it and, and uh, there was this absolutely howling wind that night and the door had blown shut behind us. And when I tried to use it, I don't know if the door was damaged or if it's just because my hands were so slick with the blood. But um, I tried about three times to open the door and my hand kept slipping off. And I thought, well, I, I don't have time to fuck around with this anymore. Um, just just got to be action. Took out the mag light and uh, put my whole weight into punching through the, uh, you know, those sort of pane glass yep. windows. So it's not like a big thick ones, but I guess like an entryway yeah. window. Yeah. Um, put my right hand through that while I was holding the torch. Um, thankfully, we still had those big heavy mag lights back then, so I went sailing straight through it. Uh, managed to collect a few shards of glass in my arm and my knee on the way. but Like, uh, like you needed those? Yeah, oh, well, small price to pay, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> and um, tried to make my way down to the to the door and uh, – sorry, to the, to the front of the property. And while I was doing that, uh, because I – I'd worked in that area for pretty much my whole career, barring a stint in the country. Uh, I knew the area pretty well. I was on the phone, uh, on the phone, on the radio, trying to give instructions to other patrols to say, okay, well, this is what's happened. Um, I don't know where Travis is, may still be in the building. Don't know where the boy is, he may still be in the building. Um, but I was setting the RV point because I knew a couple of blocks up the road there was a, a large school oval. And so I was arranging for the ambulance and for the other patrols to meet me there and I was going to walk the two blocks down to the Oval. Um, and in the end I got one block. Um, thankfully they could see me from there. So. Yeah. And then that's when the other units started to arrive, I guess. That's when the first unit arrived, yeah. 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 It would have been a shock for them to rock up to that. But um, Yeah, it was a bit of a shock for them, yeah. It was uh, another bloke that I knew from uh, – they were actually from Grenfell Street. They'd come out of the city mm-hmm. – uh, when things had started to go south in the job. Um, so it was uh, a bloke, another bloke that I knew, another bloke called Travis, uh, and a probationary constable. She'd only been a couple of months out of the job, but luckily for me, she used to be a nurse. So, <laughs> yeah, a little bit of luck on my side there that night, thankfully. Um, so, yeah, they they stood over me and, and she started doing first aid with me while I was on the ground there, yeah. So Travis and Marcel... Yep. Um, what happened to to them eventually? How did they? How did they, I assume that Travis um, brought Marcel out of the out of the building in the end? 
No, Travis was injured himself in the firefight. Yeah, right. Um, uh, very badly damaged his leg. And so he uh, was actually stuck oh, in gosh. one of the side rooms, which he'd been sort of forced into, cornered into during the firefight. Uh, but he did manage to extract himself. Um, Marcel was a, a bit of a more interesting story. Um, I was laying on the, the side of the road there on the footpath and um, by this stage I think there were uh, – was my sergeant and maybe three other patrols had rocked up by that stage and uh, all of a sudden all of the coppers there were drawing their guns and, you know, I thought obviously the shooters reappeared – and I managed to prop myself up on one elbow and I could see this uh, figure wearing just a pair of black trackies um, and nothing else hobbling up the side of this big hedge. And I, I managed to get out, don't shoot, don't shoot, that's the victim. Before I went back down onto my shoulder, I couldn't stay up on my elbow anymore. Um, to his credit, Marcel got almost the whole way to us, but he collapsed inside the field of fire and so the uh, two of the coppers that were there with us actually mounted a bit of a an operation. They went into the field of fire to get him back and drag him back out. Yeah. And uh, they brought him back up to where um, I was and the first ambulance had just arrived um, and I was busy arguing with <laughs> the ambulance officers, as you do when you're losing that much blood. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, well... <laughs> there were three main bones of contention. My first one was the kids lost more blood, put him in the in the stretcher first. So they did that because two of them showed up at once. And, yeah. and as soon as he was off, I was like, okay, no worries. Um, then I, I was really belligerent. I wasn't going to leave without Travis. Um, thankfully, he'd managed to extract himself. And uh, one of the other guys had, just as I was having that argument with the Ambos, they managed to get him back across the road. They said, all right, Travis is here. He'll go in the ambulance with you. So, all right, no worries. Uh, and then the last argument I had was um, uh, the ambulance bloke, he said, oh, mate, we're, we're going to lower the barouche. And I remember looking at him and just saying, there's nothing wrong with my legs, you fucking idiot. <laughs> and, um, yeah, basically clawing my way up. He hit the probationer to drag myself onto the barouche. <laughs> the things you do when you're in a situation like that, Oh, you're just a stubborn old copper. So, <laughs> so I've seen photos of the surgery um, you've just showed me before, which, mm. which were incredible. But essentially, what did they have to do to to rebuild your face? Because that's essentially what they've had to do in the end is just re restructure everything and rebuild it. And yeah, it's been a well. I mean, it's an ongoing process. Where uh, what are we? Eight years out and counting now. I think we had the eight. Yeah, the eight year anniversary was. Um, April this year. Yep. Um, it's really been an, an in and out of hospital, two steps forward, one step back kind of thing. So um, the the jaw was broken quite cleanly, so I was lucky in that regard. Yeah. They didn't have to reconstruct the jaw um, because that would have added years to the recovery time. But they still had to, um, to put plates in to hold it together while it healed and they took out quite a lot of shrapnel and, um, you know, sort of cleaned the wound out and all that sort of stuff on the night. Uh, and then they, they sewed up my arm and my leg as well. And then um, a few days after that, I had to have an emergency 
tracheotomy. Um, turned out there'd been an infection that had settled in on the lungs and it was interfering with the healing of the jaw and the process and stuff. So uh, uh, with very little fanfare, yeah, they, they cut me open, put a tracheotomy in. So, um, yeah, I, I woke up to being covered in a lot of plastic and <laughs> lots of tubes and things like that. How long did you have to spend in hospital? All up a month, yep. just over a month I think it was. Um, I was in a coma, a, a medically induced coma for about a week. And I was going to say, I thought, I remember reading that you'd been in an induced coma. So Yeah. Would yeah. You, do you remember? I, I've never actually asked someone who's been, I've never spoken to someone who's been in an induced coma before. Do, do you have a memory of when you actually wake up from a coma? Actually, yes, I have. I have. And I did ask him that question. Uh, and he didn't remember. So, <laughs> okay. Well, do you do you have a memory when? You yeah, I remember. Uh, so, I guess it's what you think is your first memory. Yeah, sure. And that, well. that's the that's yeah. the important thing is you know stuff's happening around you, you're just mm. not necessarily making the Present. memory of it. Yeah. So the first thing that I remember is my sergeant at the time, um, chief inspector now, Narell, Kamenia, and. Uh, it, it's only the audio I can, and just a snippet of her face. And I remember um, she sounded really sad and I couldn't figure out why. And she was reading a card from my friends at work. She'd done the pass around of the card and because um, I couldn't read it myself, she thought she'd just sit quietly while nobody else was around and read it to me. So that was that was the first memory, you know, audio that I, I can recall but um the first visual memory was actually my partner at Seduna, a girl named mel and um you know you imagine opening your eyes and then you get that sort of shutter picture and then closing them again and her face was pressed right up against mine and i would later find out that um her and her partner had come in and um her partner had, who i also worked with in Seduna, took one look at me and she passed out in the corner and so even though they were told, oh, you know, don't go near him, don't touch him, anything like that, Mel being the curious person that she was, decided to take the distraction of the nurses dealing with her partner on the floor um, to go and poke and prod basically <laughs> to satisfy her own curiosity. But uh, so, uh, so yeah, I often tease her that she's my first memory waking <laughs> up after the, it was uh, her sticking her face in mine pretty much. Yeah. And the rehabilitation after that, what it, what goes, what's the process for something like this for a gunshot wound to the face like what is the physical i guess and then the mental rehabilitation that you need to go through uh well physically there was ongoing surgery and there's still ongoing surgery um this will actually be the first year i've not gone under the knife since the shooting um but there will be more next year so it's been a combination of working on the bone uh then there were issues um by some miracle in the initial blast i only lost two and a half teeth but because of all the complications and the repeated surgery, the damage to the jawbone, um, they've ended up having to remove the rest of them as well on the lower right side. So um, going through and rebuilding all the the structure so that there was actually enough strength in the bone to handle getting the implants was a, a quite a big step. Um, and ultimately now, you know, I've got a full set of um, ceramic they choppers. Look, look good. They do. They look better than my real ones because they're cleaner. Um, Do your friends call you jumpers or? (laughs) They call me a lot of things but never that, no. (laughs) So, um, and then on top of that there were, um, I forget what they call it. I think it's called something like autologous skin grafts where they they grow the skin on you. So, they put these balloons under your skin and then over the course of, I think it was 
for three or four months, they gradually inflate it so the skin stretches around it. Wow. So that was put between my neck and my right shoulder. So that was months of not being able to turn your head, not being able to move quickly. Yeah. Um, and, uh, of course, they did it in the middle of summer. So I'm wearing these ultra-thick scarves and giant jackets to hide the fact that I've got something about half the size of a football growing out the side of my noodle. But... Um, once that was done, they were able to actually graft that skin, pull it up over the jaw, and um, they've uh, yeah they've they've got it down to a, a pretty manageable scar at the moment. Yeah, that's for the the considering I've seen the the wound and I've seen the the, the photos you showed before to look at you now and think that 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 was that like it's it's not I, I couldn't picture it like that. It looks like a great scar considering what I saw in that photo. Yeah, like it's just it's. I'm really lucky to have had. I don't some. even know if I'll put her up. I don't know if we'll put her up on the. But yeah. that is an inc- that is is an incredible, incredible photo. Like yeah. it, it, it is. I had a world class team of surgeons. That's. Um, I mean, we're we're really lucky here in Adelaide. We have some of the best um, uh, facial reconstruction, or what do they call it, maxio cranio maxio facial surgeon, or something like that. There's some big name anyway. Yeah. Whatever they do, they're really good at it. Yeah. Um. You know, I was no oil painting to begin with, but I think they've done a fair job. Putting me back together. They've done a great job. <laughs> and so f- physically, that's, I guess, how you had to fit. Mentally, though, how do you recover from from that? What are the, what's the process you need to go through there? A lot of ups and downs. Yes, I can imagine. A lot of ups and downs. So, I, ironically, the time in the hospital, it was weirdly bittersweet for me because even though I was having to get used to my new circumstances i mean there's when something like this happens there's before and there's after and there's Mm, yep you know you never go back to the before i hadn't really started to process that yet but i was just starting to realize that you know this was going to be affecting my whole life yeah and so that was quite bitter but then on the flip side once i got off of icu and they put me on the wards um, I had all of my friends there. They would visit me constantly. They had schedules to make sure that I wasn't left alone for too long. They would um, be there all hours. You know, the nurses were pretty good about being fairly relaxed about visiting times and stuff like that. So, yeah, it was um, it was a really bittersweet time. But uh, ultimately, you know, you have to sort of leave the the safety of the hospital at some point in time and go home. And I think that's when it starts to you know, you start to realise when you don't have those people around looking after you 24-7 and eventually people stop coming to your house all the time and things like that, that um, you realise, well, you've got to make some adjustments. Mm. And, um, yeah, that that was something that um, I guess, you know, I wish there was some class or something they could teach you about these things because it's all the stuff that you don't expect that's the hard things. Yeah. Uh, I remember... I woke up one day and uh, it was probably about three or four months after the shooting and I'd been at home and um, went, you know, had my shower, looked in the mirror and went, oh, God, that's embarrassing. I'm 31 years old and I've got a giant white head. And so I, I went to pop the pimple and I heard this ding from the, from the bowl and uh, nobody ever told me, well, when you've got bits of shrapnel stuck under your skin, sometimes they don't say stuck. Yeah, they grow out. Sometimes they grow out. And um, 
I think that was the first time I actually genuinely panicked about it because yeah. I, I just went, well, what the fuck is happening to me? Yeah. And I was running out the door um, because I, I just, I rang the um, the doctors in tears. I said, I, I don't know what's happening. I've got to come in. I've got to come in. And uh, it was lucky for me. I'd, I'd completely forgotten that my old mentor from the academy had going to be come to visit me. He was actually walking in the door as I was racing out of it and he, he said, no, 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 come with me. I'm not letting you drive in this state. So he took me up to the to the hospital and they explained to me, oh, yeah, you know, uh, this is probably something we should have mentioned before, but, yeah, there's, there's going to be bits of metal coming out of you over the next few years. So, you know, it's, it's all these unexpected things and um, the fact that you uh, – even things like loss of income, you know, it's not where your head is at when you're dealing with – some kind of catastrophic injury or you've you've lost a loved one or something horrible has happened to you, money's usually not the first thing on your mind. And yeah. so I, you know, got to a stage where I was sitting there going, oh my God, I'm broke. Yeah. Because <laughs> um, I hadn't just hadn't budgeted for the, the fact that I didn't have as much money coming in. Yeah. And so, you know, after about six months, I went, wow, I actually am genuinely broke. I, I can afford to, to eat and that's about it. Yeah. But, um, you know, so there's all those those sort of little bits that I guess add up and in some ways they sort of eclipse the whole because you get the idea that, okay, I'm going to deal with this injury, that that's my life, so I've got my life to deal with that, but then all these little things keep throwing themselves up at you on a day-to-day basis and it's almost dealing with those little things is like a distraction from the whole and so mm. you become very consumed with them and, um, yeah. you know, I guess um, – it becomes your life. And yeah, you lose sight of the bigger picture. And yeah, yeah, that's right. Definitely. Um, you know, I now know how all those people that, uh, you know, you, you sort of go around to your parents' house and all they talk about is who's in the worst health or who's been in hospital or who's had this done or that done. And I, I kind of get that now because mm. um, for a while that was literally all that was happening in my life was I was going to hospital and I was doing my rehab and every other day I'd have to go down and get the dressings on the tracheotomy changed at the RDNS and things like that. So it, it really was a full-time job and it was occupying every waking minute. Yeah. And then getting yourself to the position where you can go back to work. Yep. It seems like a a very tough process to be able to come back from a gunshot wound to be able to go into back into a job where you can, you know, you have the risk of being shot again. Mm. Like how, how, do you, how do you go through that? I don't want that to come across in a bad way either. Like it's a no, no. Uh, look, I remember in the hospital when I was in the ICU and I think it was the day before they released me from ICU to go back to the wards and um, overnight, Narelle, the sergeant, had come in to visit me. I said, oh, can you send Tim in, one of the other blokes that I'd worked with a lot on the team? And I couldn't speak. I, I still had the trackie uh, and I wrote to him um, with my left hand so very poorly. I wrote, um, I don't think I can go back to policing. And I remember um, he just looked at me and he said, uh, what else do you think there is for blokes like you and me? <laughs> and he laughed. And uh, ever since he said that, I, I just nothing else other than going back to policing was ever really an option for me. And nothing short of going back on the road was ever going to satisfy me. And so that's what I set out to do. And, and I made it really clear right from the get-go, all the, the rehab people, injury management, work cover, um, the bosses at work, the, um, the the commissioners, deputy commissioners, all of those. I said, no, no matter what happens, my goal is I want to be back on the road. So that's what I, I gave myself to work towards and 
having that goal really helped. I think um, if I'd if I'd wavered more in that, then I think would have been a real possibility of me coming unstuck and not going back to work as a as a police officer. And um, you know, who knows where I would have ended up then? Yeah, definitely. And what was your first day back on the road like? Do you remember the first moment that you or that moment, I guess, that you jumped in the car and you're like, "Fuck, cleared for duty." I'm driving out the gate. I'm back in the car again. Uh, yeah, I'm feeling good. Or did <laughs> I think my new patrol team was more nervous than I was? <laughs> so um, no, I remember joking about my first day back at work having far less gunshots and explosions than my last day. And um, <laughs> about two minutes later, my phone rang and it was my sister abusing me for such poor jokes. So <laughs> um, I can imagine there would have been some. There would have been some worry from from I guess the hierarchy side. Yeah, about you going back on the road again, and, and if it, if you were put in a situation again where you where you know a firearm was drawn, what was going to happen? Did, did yeah. you have to did you have to go through that talking about that and and um and so I guess working through that type of process? Yeah, I did. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I I went to the academy for a few months. I said mm, to yep, yep, to, to sort of get my bearings back, and I. I think that was important because I wanted to be around other coppers and to not lose the sense of that being normal because being at home for that six or seven months, that, that first period, I, towards the end I started to lose my identity as a Ooh, copper yeah. a bit and yeah. I felt like uh, if I let it go too long, then I was going to be coming back not as a copper but as a as a rookie basically, as a cadet. Yeah. Uh, so I wanted to be around coppers. I wanted to be normal being in the uniform, being around the uniform. And um, one of the things that I wanted to do was make sure that I wasn't going to be a liability to my team. Mm -hmm. That when I went back on the road and when inevitably we were confronted with a gun, because if you're on the road long enough, that'll ultimately happen, that I wasn't going to fall to pieces. So that was a a process that started in the psychologist's office, uh, but it ended up in the gun range at the academy where the uh, the firearms instructors were only too happy to run me through a morning of um, sitting in with them doing their drills and then uh, they got out the shotgun that they use for the, the country um, policing for the, their court and containment courses. Pump action normally, is it? Or? Uh, God, I don't remember. I think so, yeah. Yeah. Um, and they, they fired a few, range, a few rounds downrange just to – see how I go being around the guns and, and see how I felt with the noise and things like that. And um, honestly, that, that wasn't something that I had as much trouble with as I thought I was going to. I think I'd built it up in my head. Mm. But when it happened, um, you know, when I did the shoot and I got my requalification doing my own shooting, that um, it, it was really a mountain that I'd built for myself and that once I started walking up it, I realised oh, it's just a hill didn't matter that much it was all the other stuff that came with it all the um um you know the the intrusive thoughts and the um this i guess all the mental side effects you get so even though i'm lucky i I can stand here today and say i don't have any major lingering effects like ptsd or um you know severe anxiety or anything like that but that's not to say that those things didn't happen earlier in the picture and Mm. your mental health goes up and down and um you know I, strangely i really struggled with ocd for probably about the first six to nine months after the shooting yeah right um i couldn't i couldn't have dirty hands yeah 
because every time I did... Um, you worry about getting an infection in your face and that type well, of stuff? Or? Yeah, that too. But uh, I would remember going to open that door. Yeah. And the feeling of, you know, this... Because uh, it was blood and grit. Mm. And it was... You know, I had my hands on the ground. I had my, my hands in blood. Um, if I shook a person's hand... I would not hear anything they said to me until I got to a bathroom and washed my hands. Wow. Because I was just sitting there thinking, got to wash my hands, got to wash my hands, got to wash my hands. Because the minute I stopped thinking I had to wash my hands, I'd start thinking about that gritty feeling again. So how did you overcome that? Time and, and patience and a lot of very understanding friends <laughs> explaining to people why I wasn't going to shake your hand. Hard um, work as well. And then uh, for, for the longest time, I couldn't walk through a door without locking it um, because the the shooter had entered through an open door. It was unlocked and um, the family, they'd actually migrated from South Africa because they wanted to live in a place where you could leave your doors open at night and be safe. Mm. And somehow that stuck with me and, and in the hospital, in the ICU, when they're pumping you full of drugs and stuff like that, those little suggestions get lodged in your brain. So for me, I couldn't walk through a door that was, you know, I, I could walk through like a nightclub door or something like that but any door that was designed for just one person to go through at a time, I'd have to immediately lock it behind me. Yeah, I couldn't right. help it. It was just this this overwhelming compulsion, which frankly, when you're trying to get back into dating, is is really difficult to explain <laughs> to to you know some poor um, woman that comes around to your house <laughs> why you've locked the door behind her. Um, but you know, I got in the habit of giving people a warning after the first time <laughs> someone freaked out about that. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, fair enough. And. Um, so yeah, we're talking about getting back to to work itself. Yeah. So after you 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 got back on the road and and you, and you got back to your normal job, mm. did you feel like like did you feel a lull? Like did you feel like your your sense of um, I guess uh, or like setting because you'd gone through so much of you know being shot in the face mm. and and nearly. The hair's breath away from 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 dying, and mm. then to be able to come back to that work all the way up and get to the point where you said the only goal I have is to get on the road, and and you go on the road and you mm. did that. After that, was it was it hard for you after that to go on and do more things or set more goals? Did you have a lull or a sense of, um, I guess, uh, a sense of uh, unfulfillment? I guess after that, I say that because a lot of it's very common, like you can talk about it in a sports sense. Um, something I guess a, a, a reference that you can make is like the um, the Olympics for mm. Olympic athletes. They have um, they work you know four years to get themselves mostly a lifetime, but yeah. they have that four year period where they um, where they work to get themselves good enough to go into the uh, in the Olympics, and then then they build up. They have this massive massive build up, and then the Olympics happens, and then there's a fall away. Yeah, and they call it the post Olympic blues, and yeah. it's just like a depressive state that happens after the Olympics when they've achieved so much, mm. but then they've got nothing else to, to look forward to then. How did you go after that period? I've always been really good at setting myself the next goal before I finish the first one. Yeah, yeah. Cool. And so I didn't really let myself have that lull period because I, uh, I I was aware of that, you know, I could go back on the road and then after a couple of months of doing that, crash back out. But yep. I was lucky I kept setting goals and I kept having – friends that were you know helping me to keep busy and workmates helping me to keep busy that pushed me through that period so mm. i never got that drop off but i could see it from where i was standing if that makes sense yeah definitely and 
at what point did you start getting into advocacy about working towards, I guess, a um, a better state for, for police officers? So that actually came a few years later and it, um, in a weird way, it wasn't directly related. Um, I've, I've been in the job since 2007, so 12 years now. And um, in that time, I've seen a lot of my mates... Um, you know, they experience difficulties and mm. we've got all these euphemisms that we use, you know, our old mates coming unstuck or, um, you know, the wheels are falling off. And uh, But we never really directly talk about it and it's only really, I think, in the last, well, the last maybe half a decade that there's been this great awakening almost in the police force and um, I think in the military and in, in some of the other emergency services as well that yeah. uh, we really have not historically done a good job of looking after ourselves or our mates. Yeah, definitely. And I'd seen that many come unstuck, if I guess you want to use that euphemism. But then it's not just being unstuck. It's all the stuff that comes after that. Mm. And the hardest thing for me was seeing these people going through it and me knowing exactly what they were going through because I'd been there, but they had no idea what was coming and what was possibly going to happen to them. And so I really wanted to start a way for people to educate themselves and to get some information that had no chance of attaching stigma to it and that they could do privately in the comfort of their own home, um, you know, in their own time, away from anybody else. Because I think what we do really well, in the, or what we've started to do really well in the last few years as a society is to challenge mental health and to say what are we doing wrong Mm, and how can we improve and stuff like that but none of that means anything to the individual because the individual that's having those problems they don't want to be challenged they're already challenged enough they've got enough going on they want to have a way that they can get that information where they're not going to be judged where they can start making their own informed decisions and so um that's what was i guess the the brainchild was um seeing so many of my friends and my colleagues go through that uh, to create emergency archives, uh, which, you know, my goal was um, after looking around myself, uh, I couldn't find anywhere on the internet where you could just go and there was a big database of research articles, things like that, you know, everywhere else, I guess, if you wanted to go look for something on depression or anxiety, then you'd have to type in that and you'd, Mm. you'd go to the, I don't know, the... Beyond Blue or the Society for Anxious People or whatever it was and you'd read their research. Well, what I wanted to do was put all that together so that people could just go there. Definitely. And just have this one comfortable place that they could be. And um, and that's really been the, the sort of overwhelming um, response to people is that uh, when they visit the site, you know, it's this place that they can go and just get the information that they want. They don't have to read through the same thing 10 times because, you know, all mental health articles, they tend to start out pretty much of a muchness. Um, they wanted to go through and get the bits that they wanted, the parts that were relevant to them. They wanted to be able to search through a lot of things at once because that's just how we do things these days. You know, nobody sits down and reads the whole book. You're just going to read the the couple of chapters that are about you. Definitely. So I wanted to give people the tools to educate themselves and to get to just those chapters about them without having to keep going through the same things over and over again, but also to be able to do it 
themselves and to give themselves a bit of agency to start making their own decisions. And, and when your mental health starts to flag, it's that agency that you lose first. Yeah. And it's always been my experience that once you start giving people a bit of that agency back, that's when they start to show some signs of recovery. Yeah, you, know, you, need, you need to get them into the mindset where they actually want to get better. That's right. Because yeah. yeah. until that and happens... That they can get better. Yeah, exactly. And until that happens, um, it, it unfortunately, it doesn't matter how many times you, you go to a doctor, it doesn't matter how much medication you take, it doesn't matter what you go through. Until you're in the mindset where you want to change, you, you, it just doesn't change. It can't change. Yeah, it's such a, right. It's such an individual and such an inside-your-head yeah, literally. <laughs> yeah, it inside is. your head, that inside your head issue, and so it it can't change until you're in the right mindset, or you're in the right. You've been given the right structure, which is obviously what you created here. Yeah, is it is it is a uh, unbiased structure almost where people can go to and without any worry of being judged, and uh, and there's no there's no bias there, and there's no there's no judgment, there's nothing there. They can just go there, seek the information they want, and and develop, I guess, and. And get uh, get on the right path. Yeah, yeah, and uh, you know that was that was partially inspired as well by my wife. She suffers from PTSD. She um, she unfortunately experienced quite a lot of domestic violence uh, in her previous relationship. Uh, but what she found was that every different psychologist she'd go to would say, "Okay, well, here's how we're going to treat your PTSD," and um, you know they had mixed results. Some of them were quite good. Some of them helped her a lot. Some of them. I think probably set her back a bit. Yeah. Um, but it wasn't until she really started looking into, well, what decisions do I have that I can make about what treatment's going to work for me or what I think is going to be the most effective that she really got a bit of her agency back and started to work on what she wanted rather than just, well, this is what the Someone psychologist else. tells me or the social worker tells me or, you know, whoever it is that's in yeah. front of you that day. Yeah. It let her say, well, this is the path that I want to go down. Yeah, it's brilliant. And I mentioned oh, – I, I, I read something before that you had said there was an issue with legislation within, uh, I guess, within the framework of police that didn't didn't help them enough to um, be able to seek support. Is that linked to this or is that something separate, I guess? Like I said, I think we've, we've really had a great awakening – over the last few years about exactly how badly policing across the world has mm. treated mental health in our own ranks. And it's something that I harp on to every time I talk to a group of nurses or I talk to a group of coppers is just because we're going out and we're dealing with other people's mental health, we are absolutely no better at dealing with our own or our mates than the next person down the line. We have all the tools the minute you take it out of the professional environment and put it in the personal environment, it's different. It's so different because, um, you know, I, I spent a few years as a police negotiator and I can talk to a suicidal building, a person on the edge of a building for hours and I won't bat an eyelid, but sitting down with your best mate and having a hard conversation and saying, um, I've seen what's been happening to you lately and, um, you know, um, I think you've got some issues and we need to talk about that that is so much harder than a person standing on the side of the building. Yeah. And we, as police, we think we have all those tools. The reality is we probably do. It's just how they're used, the difference between the professional and the personal. And uh, when it crosses into that personal, we 
are, I think, absolutely no better or worse off than the rest of the community. So you've got the emergency archive now. Yes. That, that's set up for, I guess, the doctrinal way of searching for things uh, mm-hmm. online. How do we institute this? How do we institute a better a better platform or a better program that teaches cops, teaches first responders? Because I think it's – I don't think it's um, – Although I think there's there's definitely a lot of uh, issues within the the within the police, you know, like you say, worldwide, like we discussed here in dealing with mental. I don't think it's um it's not just segregated to you guys. I don't think the fireys deal with it that well either. And I and True. I think the ambulance are, are getting better. The ambulance service definitely SA ambulance. They're doing they have the peer support net, which, which we're talking about offline, um, mm. up, mm. which is um, which I think is a is a working solution and and, it, and it's helping them. But what's the what do you think the model is or what is there a is there a program that that the that you guys need to develop to be able to start teaching people these skills? I don't think there's going to be any one catch all program. I think it needs to be a very holistic approach and that's something that there's a lot of pressure to move towards and um you know you see it with uh, police officers that have taken their lives around the world um particularly in Australia, you know, we, we've got the the issues that have come out of the federal police and um, the uh, the culture there is what is being blamed for a lot of the uh, mental health issues and for a lot of people committing suicide um, who are members of the, the federal police. So you can start with the culture and work backwards. I think that will give you a, a good point to look at and say, well, what is it about the police culture because yes there's the nature of the job there are all of the things that we go out and we see and we deal with mental health every day and you know uh, horrific accidents and dead bodies and things like that and that that's its own kind of trauma but when that trauma is reinforced by not having appropriate support networks either at work at home preferably both mm. that's when you see people go from I'm having issues to I'm off the charts now and and we're in uncharted territory. So starting with culture and working backwards, we we need to understand that as police officers, as fireys, as um, military or ambulance or nurses, that it's each other that are going to be our first port of call and it's it's each other that's going to notice first. And and often I find speaking to coppers, our teammates know a long time before our families do when things start happening, yeah, when definitely. we start getting sick or when we start um, having those mental issues that we just can't get over. When you're working in a really intimate team environment, particularly when you're out on the road or when you're going to jobs, you know, you're going to, to fires or Ambo's going to their call outs, then it's the person that's working with you day after day that's going to see those changes in you because they don't happen just overnight. It's not like a, a switch that gets flipped, you know, the idea that you're going to go to this one job and that's going to be what breaks you. Well, it might be the thing that tips you over the edge. It's probably the thing that the glass is full and yeah. it's that one drop of water that yeah. that, that causes it to yeah, Beautiful analogy. Yep, yeah, exactly right. Um, so without educating ourselves as police officers in how to apply and look I 
I say police officers, I should say emergency services and military, how to apply all those skills that we learn about dealing with mental health out in the public to dealing with mental health amongst ourselves. Um, and look, there, there's a lot of tools that are now being brought online. You know, we've got mental health first aid training. Uh, we've got um, different iterations of peer support. You said yourself the um, the South Australian Ambulance Service has what I consider to be one of the best peer support models in the world. Um, they've had great success with that. Yeah, And that just shows that it's talking amongst ourselves and working with each other. That's what is going to be the crux of changing that culture, of, of removing that stigma and um, giving us the, the safety net that we need to catch our mates when they start to come unstuck. Yeah. I feel like um, I've done a lot of work in – in uh within i guess that peer support kind of area and there's an um a charity that i'm linked to um the hospital the hospital research foundation and then the road home is the mm. is the charity they they have a peer support network program there and um what i've found is that it's a, just a different form of treatment that works really well like you 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 have your clinical treatment and you have your so when i say clinical for people listening, it's it's going to see a psychiatrist, going to see a psychologist, your GPs, all that kind of stuff. You have your medication treatment. Um, you have all your 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 programs that you go through, whether it's cognitive behaviour therapy, all those types of things, acceptance behaviour therapy, whatever it is. You've got those different types of therapies. But then a peer support network, a strong peer support network is a, is a therapy in itself, but it's not clinical. But it's so powerful. And I feel like it's as it is as powerful as all those other ones put together, and it's it, it is it is just the most powerful thing when you can sit down with someone and understand. You know, we sit here as two individuals with completely different backgrounds, completely different situations in life. You know, completely different life experiences. Mm. But I guarantee you, if we sat here and we spoke about depression and we spoke about the things that we were struggling with, and or anxiety, you know, things that we were struggling with, and the <laughs> Yeah, it'll break if it breaks. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, you know, all those, um, I guess, all those types of things that we, we battle with on a day-to-day basis, guarantee you they're going to be the same. You yeah. know, the, the, the context is different, but what we're suffering from, you know, the symptoms, those, you know, the thoughts, the patterns and everything that's going through your head is actually exactly the same. It's very, very yeah. similar. And that's what the peer support network actually allows you to break down is that you can sit there and you can say well i'm not the only person that's going through this Mm. you know yes i might be the only one in south australia has been shot in the face but i'm not i'm not the only person that's actually suffering these types of mental health injuries and it breaks it down for you yeah i think you've hit the nail on the head there and i I think uh it's something that we don't like to admit in the emergency services and in the military but we are conditioned to seek out like yeah. Like seeks like. So as police officers, we become comfortable being around other police officers. Um, if you're in the military, then, you know, I'm guessing seeing your, your day-to-day fatigues around barracks and stuff, that's actually probably quite comforting. Yeah, and so definitely. whether it's overt or whether it's covert, how that conditioning happens, and in the military it's a bit more overt, I guess, than the emergency services. Mm. But you do come to rely on those people that are around you and see them as a safety net because they're like you. 
they look like you, they dress like you, they've got the same training as you, they go out and do all the same things and, in fact, sometimes you're doing them together. And so even if you were to say, if, if you partnered me up tomorrow with someone that I didn't particularly like, I didn't enjoy spending my eight hours in the car with them going around doing whatever, I would still feel on some level comfortable with them because I've been conditioned to like being around police officers, just like you know, you've probably had some conditioning to like being around um, people from the same sort of military or, yeah, or, or emergency services background, you know, fireys. I mean, they're notorious, aren't they, for having their little brigade and then they eat together, sleep together. <laughs> yeah. Well, okay, phrase that poorly. Sleep at the same time in the yeah, same yeah. place. Yeah, I know what you mean. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, not that there's anything wrong with the other kind, but <laughs> each to their own. Um, you know, they that for them, that is the normal thing. And so if we suddenly go, well, you're mentally ill, we're going to take that away. That really compounds the problem more than it helps it. Yeah. And for me, you know, I, I, I talked earlier about... I didn't feel like a cop towards the end of the time that I was laid up. Mm. And I actually, um, I woke up one morning with a hangover and I realised that that was about the fourth or fifth morning in a row I'd woken up with a hangover. And that started ringing some alarm bells for me and the first thing I did was get on the phone and I was I was bawling my eyes out and I begged to come back to work. So I don't care, put me in an office, do whatever you want, just put me somewhere where there's going to be other people in uniform. Without that, that that was um, that was what was playing on my mind the most. Yeah, you know, I needed to be around that peer support. You lose that structure. Yeah, yeah. So, if you had some advice to to give to people who who are going through, you know, a similar scenario, similar serious injuries, and and both physical and and mental, what would you what would you kind of give if you had to give some advice to people? Or even better way of putting it. Seems though we've just gone through that whole topic there. If there are other emergency service people out there who are struggling at the moment, what would be your advice to them? Work on your own support networks. Educate yourself and decide the sorts of things that you think are going to work for you and start exploring them. Because if you just leave it and you think, well, I'm not going to explore those options, I'm going to... Um, I'm going to just let it go. I'm going to let it slide and just see where the ball lays and then I'll play it from there. Where that ball ends up, that's not in your control. All right? But the minute you start educating yourself and you start making some decisions for yourself and you start clawing back a little bit of that agency, whether you do it yourself or whether you get help from friends or however you do it, um, get that process started. And if, if that means just logging on to a website and reading a few articles just to broaden your mind a bit if that's where you got to start that's where you got to start it's awesome advice man it's taking that ownership and getting back on the on the right track yeah, yeah. and and look I'll, I'll be the first to say sometimes that agency that is the hard part yeah but even if that agency starts with just making the decision that you're going to look up a website or you're going to read a book or you're going to talk to your mate even if it's not directly about that ring up, make contact with, uh, you know, your old buddy that you haven't heard from for a while or something like that. Just take a step because you'll find once you take a step, the second one is so much easier. Yeah, definitely. So much easier once you've decided that you're going to take the first one. Putting those two feet in front of each other and... Yeah, that's right. Just continuing to walk. Yep. 
if someone wanted to, to reach out to you, uh, what would be the best way they could do that? So you can reach out. To, we've got a contact page on Emergency Archives and I'm always happy to, to take a contact that comes from there or through the Facebook site. Um, I'll put all the links to those in the, in the show notes as well. Great, great. Uh, yeah, look... Um, uh, yeah, if you, if you reach out through the website or through the um, Facebook or Facebook or whatever your your social media poison of choice is, uh, if I'm on it, I'll respond to you. Awesome. And then last question, which I ask everyone that's been on the on the podcast: What does being a healthy bloke mean to you? I think it's about being comfortable with yourself, and it's about being able to get up in the morning and say. I'm okay with who I am. Yeah. Because being healthy doesn't need to be anything more than you just being okay with you. Being okay with your own self. Mm. I love it. It's perfect. Mate, thank you so much for this. I thank really you appreciate for having it. me. It's been an awesome chat, actually. It says it's been, you know, there's so many things here, so many things we covered. Your story is just an incredible one. So I can't wait for people to kind of hear that. But just what we covered afterwards as well, that last 40 minutes or so that we just spoke about there has just been solid go. Oh, mate, we're at Aaron 21 at the moment. Oh, jeez. So. <laughs> or Aaron 10, Aaron 15-ish because I think we had five minutes of smack talking beforehand. But <laughs> You're not going to play the smack talk, right? No, no, I cut <laughs> that bit out. <laughs> yeah, no, mate, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Anytime. Awesome. Okay, that was an absolutely awesome episode and I'm so thankful that I got the chance to sit down with Brett who's such an inspirational human being to go from being shot point blank in the face with a shotgun to being put into an induced coma. And I've seen the photos of his face. It it, it was torn apart, torn apart to then go from that point to being able to get yourself back to being a serving member or continue your service within the police force is just an incredible journey. And I'm just so grateful that he, he agreed to sitting down with me and I just, yeah, I'm so grateful that we got to share his story with you guys. As I said at the beginning of the episode, if you want to be a legend of the week, if you want to help us grow, that's the most specific thing here is that we're talking about helping the podcast grow. Don't take sponsorships. We don't accept money or anything like that for, for doing that. We don't, certainly don't get paid for anything. We're just trying to grow this podcast steadily as quickly, or I guess as we're growing steadily at the moment. We're trying to grow it as quickly as we can and get out there and reach as many people as we possibly can. So if you want to help us grow and as a byproduct, you want to be considered for Legend of the Week, all you need to do is leave us a rating and most importantly, leave us a review on iTunes or Facebook and you could be featured on an upcoming episode of The Blowcast. All right, that's it for today's episode. Thank you all for tuning in, uh, trying to cut through this exit or this uh, outro as quick as I can because I know it's been a long episode Uh, and thank you again I really appreciate every single one of you who's out there supporting this podcast and helping us grow and the the support that we've or that I've got through doing this has been incredible the journey's been great so far and it's only going to continue for the foreseeable future as far as I can see so thank you again and uh, as always we'll catch you in the next fucking episode